Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey there, I'm Grant Wall. Welcome to the Planet Football Podcast. Our interview guest today is Susie Rack, the women's soccer and women's sports reporter for The Guardian. Our interview was recorded on December 11th. A quick reminder, if you like the podcast, it would really help us if you go to Apple Podcasts and provide a rating and a review. And we'd appreciate you recommending the podcast to someone you know. Onward! Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Our guest today is Susie Rack. She is the women's football and women's sports writer for The Guardian. She was recently one of seven nominees in the sports category of the British Journalism Awards. And she happens to be in New York right now, which is fantastic. Susie, thanks for coming on the show. No problem. It's good to be here and slightly weird. <laughs> um, and I've been wanting to get you on the show for a while. Uh, it's really cool that this came together here. You're in New York. Um, but I first really uh, jumped onto your work when you broke this incredible story uh, about the Afghanistan women's national team and really terrible abuse happening inside that team. And wanted to begin just by kind of asking you, how did that come together and, and what do you remember about the whole thing? So it was, a, it was quite a long process um, and a kind of bit of luck because I had been in touch with the uh, team captain at the at sort of the time or six months before, um, Shabnan uh, Mobaraz, uh, when she was involved in equal playing fields, um, mm-hmm. world record attempted Jordan. So mm-hmm. they were uh, trying to break the world record for the lowest altitude football match after doing the highest altitude at Kilimanjaro. And she was taking part in that in Jordan. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed her about Afghanistan and I interviewed a couple of the Jordanian players about um, 
more the equal playing field projects generally. And uh, so I built up a bit of a relationship with Shabnan then. Um, it's sort of stayed in touch loosely. So then when they started tweeting about these contracts that they'd been asked to sign, so that was in March, then in October they kind of start a few of them started tweeting about these contracts that had been asked to sign and refused. Um and had subsequently been kicked off the team for refusing to sign the contracts. Uh, I got in touch and said, you know, what's going on? Uh, you know, can we have a chat? And I spoke to her and Mina, another player who's based in Germany. And they, so they, they both spoke to me about the contracts and, you know, like the idea that these contracts were aimed at silencing them, that they were basically signing away uh, their rights to agree any sponsorship deals without the federation's agreement um, including like via their clubs and stuff so it's really really restrictive um, that they couldn't speak to the press or um, even uh, really use social media without federation approval um, that uh, basically they were giving up a lot uh for zero pay as well like mm-hmm. they weren't being paid so they're being asked to sign these contracts they refused got kicked off the team and so they told me a bit about that about how it's restricting their freedom and stuff but they kept saying have a chat with kelly have a like there was clearly something more going on and uh neither of them quite felt comfortable enough to just say it outright i think um kelly's the coach kelly Lindsay, mm-hmm. and uh so, yeah so they they put me in touch with kelly and she, you know, she just kind of, you know, laid laid, ev- laid everything out. She's a very, uh, very blunt person, mm-hmm. Kelly. Uh, very fun, and um, she basically, yeah, just kind of detailed the abuse. Um, it was sexual abuse, yes, yeah, sexual abuse. physical abuse, um, emotional abuse as well. You know, like real psychological abuse, um, uh, threatening behaviour. Um, by the president of the federation, yeah, by the president and others? of the federation and others, um, coaches, uh, staff members of the federation, the general secretary uh, was—they were all accused uh, by Kelly to me, um, and then it was sort of a process of trying to piece things together. Then she put me in touch with Kalida uh, in Denmark, who was sort of kind of manager of the team. She was previously. Um, the uh women's foot like head of women's football for the federation um but had to flee the country uh was based in denmark and i had a chat with her and now she had been working uh sort of with fifa on investigating it and had brought all of the uh allegations to fifa um but they were all her the players all kind of frustrated with the pace of the process with fifa and kind of wanted a bit of external pressure to to up uh, the pace of things a little bit um, because it's really I think there's a good little group of people working uh, at FIFA on it but it, it wasn't really kind of they hadn't reached the point at which they were going to bring charges against him at the uh, ethics committee or anything yet and so mm. it was just taking a bit too long for them um, so they approached me about doing the story obviously I was very keen Um and it uh, it took a long time to do because obviously we're a newspaper. We don't have the ability to prove uh, at, like prove allegations of rape and sexual abuse in the country <laughs> thousands of miles away from where we're based. So it was kind of very much piecing together uh, the different stories um, and trying to build as much of a burden burden of proof that would make it publishable. Um, it's plenty of stuff that we couldn't publish just because we couldn't prove it, um, and even kind of when it came down to the crunch 
the lawyers came back and said, look, we can't finally approve this. You've got to make an editorial decision as to whether you want to publish because ultimately we still, you know, we have uh, the statements of five victims and their entire stories. We've got, you know, various little bits of um, stuff that they've given us to help back up their story just for our lawyers. Um, But ultimately we still can't prove it. So it is still libelous. So it was... um, you know, a bit of a leap of faith on the part of the editors, which you know, I was quite worried about for uh, for a while because, you know, I sort of promised uh, Kalida and the players that we were going to publish this. And then it was just, yeah, I, th- I think it took it took over a month before we got wow. it through um, and had to keep going back to them and said, oh, is there any way we could, this little bit that they've said here, can we find something that backs that up in some way? Is there someone that they spoke to or visited that is willing to even just write, a text message that says yes this happened or whatever it may be and little little things like that um that would that would help uh so yeah it was it was quite a long slow process but then when it broke um in Afghanistan in particular it had massive impact which was like really really great um because that was the key really that Afghanistan's such a sort of almost like wild west Mm -hmm. um country at the moment there's no real legal system that women can really go to for with issues like this um the president of the federation himself um kareem uh was a former governor like military man you know very kind of vicious guy a uh, huge amount of power and there's mm. so there's not really anywhere for them to turn to and then also in terms of reporting it to both fifa and the afc which had been done uh like for quite a while um part of the problem uh part one of the problems they faced was that the victims being from afghanistan didn't even really have a way to articulate their abuse if that makes sense because Mm. it's such a taboo subject in afghanistan society uh sex rape abuse whatever it may be um that even the language of it doesn't really exist so then you don't trigger the right uh, safeguarding protocols because you can't articulate hmm. what has actually happened to you in a way that does hit trigger those those mm-hmm. safeguarding protocols. So there's all these different like things that are blocking them, and um, and then obviously the situation for them was very very unsafe. Um, you know we'd had obviously the one that was uh, the biggest one in the main story was. Uh, girl who was raped having a gun held to her head and being threatened and um having uh security of the president show up at her parents house and things like that and that um uh that was a big fear for us was safety of the girls when we published and uh most of them were either in hiding or out of the country um but it's something that we had to keep going back to with does this identify someone too much uh it you know this description here does this give away like will they know exactly who this is based on what they've said um and so yeah that was another little hurdle that we faced as well was you know just making sure that there was safe the safety issues were covered and then um uh obviously the issue of i, su- I suppose publishing internationally gave it enough of a profile and enough of um enough of an international profile to sort of ensure a degree of safety which mm. they wouldn't have been afforded if they had gone to the police or like right. to just to fifa or whatever which was quite important really in in the resolution of this part of the resolution mm. is 
that the Afghan Federation president has been banned for life mm. by FIFA? Yeah, so he's been banned for life. The general secretary has been banned for five years. I think there's another coach who's been banned for five years. Um, but whilst that's all quite satisfying, there's still, you know, huge problems in the way FIFA operates. I mean, they've brought out new safeguarding protocols, but they're uh, aimed at abuse, but they're written uh, for children. Um, they're mm. not aimed at adult players. Um, so there's still nothing really to protect women, uh, women footballers from, abru- from abuse, uh, from uh, a safeguarded point of view within FIFA. So that's a big problem. Um, the issue of how you report abuse was massive because when uh, they first approached uh, FIFA uh, with the complaints, they were told that you can only they could only take complaints via the general secretary and the president of the federation which obviously <laughs> if your complaints are against them then that's uh, Unbelievable. That, yeah, yeah and that uh those kind of things still exist in theory um so there's like there's loads of little problems that make it quite difficult and then also um fifa are under like uh, like just basically don't care enough to intervene in a country's uh, fe- that the way a federation is run, um, mm. so like it's highly likely that the people that step into the place of uh, of those that have kind of been banned are going to be kind of similar levels of corruption and abuse as the ones that have gone. So until there's kind of a complete overhaul of the federation in Afghanistan and FIFA actually kind of really hit them with really. Uh, detrimental sanctions to the federation as a whole then I think that there's still a long way to go that said I mean just getting the president banned is obviously huge and massively impactful for the for the victims as well problem is is he's such a powerful guy he's at the moment completely evading uh, arrest and criminal charges and uh, there's yeah I, I mean there's so many loopholes uh, to Afghan law that mean that he could completely get off. Um, and I think they're, they're currently dragging their feet a bit, uh, the prosecution, um, basically to eke it out as long as possible so that people lose interest and forget about it. Mm. Um, you know, he's still not behind bars, he's not been arrested. Uh, he's not uh, switched from uh, a suspect to uh, like a... Uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, so, you know, someone who is being charged with a, with an offence yet, and like that's like so. This yeah, there's still massive, massive issues because yeah, he's maybe banned from football, but he's got his finger in many pies and can just go into another area and likely abuse yeah. girls in any other section of society that he ends up in. Wow. Um, we did have Kalita Popal on the mm-hmm. podcast uh, not too long after your story came out. Uh, and she was very impressive just in her ability to talk about things and and lay out what, you know, fears for her safety, mm-hmm. things like that. Is from what you know, have where are, are is everyone safe now in terms of, uh, players, women's players mm-hmm. for Afghanistan who reported the abuse? As safe as they can be, yeah. I mean, most are out of the country. Um, and then others are in hiding. Um, and 
then obviously the ones that are out of the country, one of the fears that they've got is for their families. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are some families in hiding as well. But yeah, as most of them are out of the country. So that was, I, I know FIFA were working on helping get them out as well. But most of that work was done by uh, people around the players helping get them out before we broke the story. Because um, okay. that was one of our biggest concerns was that, yeah, it would put people at risk. So yeah. Um, and Kelly Lindsay too. Yeah remains very vocal mm. very critical of fifa oh yeah totally um i and the thing with kelly is i yeah i think she's quite uh she's been very very affected by um by the abuse of her players sure. um uh, like em- very emotionally and mentally affected by it um and so i think when she kind of goes for the the jugular on infantino it's a very emotional response um and it's born from you know hearing the stories of these players and and trying to help them and trying to help them get out of the country and you know i think she you know i I wouldn't ever say that she would go back on the words that she said and i don't think she would and i think she'd stand by them and she's right to be very very critical but um i think you know the kind of way like I say, I think every, everything she said has been been very, very emotive, and I think that's always it's not it's I don't think it's as as viciously angry um, nece- like in in the way it comes across as it's necessarily meant. Um, but yeah, I mean, huge fa- failings of FIFA um, at all levels. Um, back just before the World Cup, uh, we did a story on the fact that FIFA had been told about abuse and corruption and abuse of boys um, in Afghanistan going back two years prior to these abuse allegations coming out. And... Um, uh the the sort of answer i was given um by the press officers there was that well we get so many complaints about fifa and we can't investigate them all and there's got to be some kind of um proof and it's like well one of these letters was signed by 34 provisional presidents of um of the Afghanistan Football Federation. Now, is that not enough of a burden of right. of, of proof and um, discontent to investigate it? Um, and they didn't. And yeah, so like from start to finish, they've kind of been willing to uh, overlook uh, overlook things. Um, and I, it all boils down to votes with FIFA, doesn't it? It's all about um, uh, who votes for who when it comes to voting for the president. And that's the problem that they've got is that they will overlook whatever's going on in whatever federation as long as they get the right outcome they want come any kind of vote or election that they need um and sort of wash their hands of what's going on within federations and say oh well it's not our jurisdiction and oh we you know we're just a governing body we don't have the power to intervene in the affairs of a country especially when it's criminal stuff and things like that and it's like well come on hang on a second in you're a not for you're you're a not for profit body. Surely there's a burden of responsibility on you to use the power of football, which is massive, to actually try and influence things for the better. To actually try and you know in countries like Afghanistan where the rights of women are so trodden on, to actually try and improve things um, rather than just kind of you know wipe your hands clean and 
give money to a, um, a, a subsidiary organisation that is basically going to be um, a conduit to abuse rather than like actually kind of trying to have uh, your organisation within that country being a force for good and and change. So yeah, uh, there's so many problems with FIFA. <laughs> yeah. Um... Congratulations on the story. It's it's a very it's a tragic, sad mm. story, but it's also something that you help bring to light, which is in the end uh, a good thing. Mm. Um, but um, in terms of why you're here in New York, mm. um, you came over here. You posted on on your Twitter, which is why I contacted you, and we were able to arrange this. Um, uh, you and Megan Rapino uh, doing an interview. Um, how, how was that? Yeah, oh, it was great. Um, so I've interviewed Megan over the phone previously and, you know, been in her press conferences during the World Cup and mix zones and that she believes mm. and things like that. Um, but it's nothing quite like sitting down and having a chat with her one-on-one. Um, just a incredibly honest and thoughtful human being. Um, and, it, you know, when you sit down to interview her, it's like you're having a chat around like around a table at home you know like uh, we had we sat down over breakfast and it is like sitting down over breakfast and shooting the breeze over um politics sport you know you name it um yeah like really really great i'm very much like into the social effects of sport and Mm -hmm. uh, and the power of sport so like for me she's someone great to speak to because obviously she she gets that um in uh, in so many ways so yeah it's really really cool how is megan rapina viewed in england is it any different than how she's viewed here it's it's a little polarizing here yeah. in the sense that she has so many supporters but also um a fair number of trump type uh critical folks as well yeah so i don't think we have that aspect of it because i think the people that know of her um the people who are aware of women's football are are generally a more progressive section of society because if you're if you're a supporter of women's football you're generally probably um from a from a more progressive section of society and so you don't really get uh that kind of level of um frustration at um kind of the kneeling or the being outspoken against trump um generally it's very much uh supportive of that and um i think yeah like super popular i mean the amount of offers i got uh from people saying can i come and be your pa can i come and hold your bag can i uh do you need a photographer um like you know real um real kind of uh like idol status i think amongst uh particularly women's football followers mm-hmm. um but also beyond that um you know amongst um gay rights activists um amongst just uh like left wing generally in england you know jeremy corbyn supporting Leia, um you know anyone who's kind of tackled someone like trump is going to be hugely popular with with that layer of society as well so yeah i think the the, pro- the people probably closest to Trump supporters in the UK just won't even know who she is. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a safe environment for her to come okay. and chill out in if she wants to come and play in WSO anytime <laughs> soon. <laughs> I mean, I wanted to ask you about the growth of women's soccer in England mm. uh, because 
clearly we've seen the England national team uh, get to the semifinals of the last two Women's World Cups. Um, the league there appears to be putting more money into it, uh, what they're doing. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, are you seeing sort of a, a growing rivalry between not just England and like the United States mm -hmm. national team wise, but also the league over there and the league here? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think the big bonus um, that maybe puts the Women's Super League ahead of other leagues, I don't think it's necessarily as good as the NWSL in that it, like when you've got such a big pool of players from college football and you've got a draft system that that creates competitiveness that is like unreplaceable um it's yeah it's that kind of keeps it keeps it ahead i think but where i think the WSL is leading the way and the FA are leading the way is that I th at the moment it feels like everyone is singing from the same hymn sheet a little bit so you've got uh, clubs and the FA um, and the England setup all really, really brought in to the same um, the same plan. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, yeah, there there are criticisms. You know, there are things that clubs don't like that the FA does, and vice versa. But overall, the strategy is is there. Like it's it's clicked a little bit this year. You know, this idea of playing some of um, some of the big. Uh, like rival games in the main men's stadia in front of tens of thousands of people and things like that that's that's quite a new development and it's it's so it's it's only really been quite a recent switch that, that the mindset around that idea has changed a little bit and that's where i think the fa and clubs are, have, have kind of come together and, and realized what you know what can be achieved by going that route um and then, yeah, so I think uh, for me, that's the biggest thing is everyone is sort of pulling in the same direction, including the media as well. Um, and I don't think any other league really has that to quite the same extent. Obviously, um, you know, the NWSL expansion, that kind of stuff is uh, causing a lot of uh, friction at the moment and frustrations over um, timing and whether it's going to happen and um, stuff. And then you've got, uh, in France obviously Lyon pushing very much um, against the grain of the rest of the league and the rest of the clubs in terms of investment and stuff so I think we're probably the only league that has the sort of everyone heading in the same direction mm -hmm. uh, to that extent so for me that's that's probably its biggest bonus and then um, as a result of that we're getting the big crowds and even at the sort of the non-big games, still getting decent crowds. You know, Chelsea are averaging over 4,000 a game at the mm -hmm. moment, um, which like three, four years ago, it was 800 at most. So mm. it's, um, yeah, it's, it's an exciting time and the investment is going up. Obviously, us getting Sam Kerr into the league as well is massive, um, really exciting. Uh, and then also getting Dawn Scott into the national team. Um, I think those are both quite big indicators about a little bit of a power shift, maybe. Um, yeah, Sam Kerr's so exciting to see. I mean, Sam Kerr deciding to leave yeah. Chicago Red Stars mm -hmm. uh, and and was playing part-time in the W League down in Australia in the off-season, um, has joined Chelsea. I, did we ever figure out how much money they're, they're paying her? No, and they, they won't say. <laughs> I have asked. Um, I know... 
it's a lot. I don't even know if it's the most in the league because really? um, clubs are so secretive about wages. I mean, mm. I would assume it is, um, but I don't think, like, I think some of the big Arsenal players and things um, get good money. Um, and I reckon it's not probably too far off some of the big big players at, at clubs like that. Um, but that said, I think it, it most likely is going to be the best player pair in the world, but um, or in England at least. I don't think it compete with Leon uh, yeah. as wages that are just above ev- anything else. But with endorsements and stuff, she's probably um, probably the highest paid player in the world. Okay, and in terms of the England national team, um, Phil Neville has not had the the easiest road post world cup it seems like and that and his teams what's kind of been happening with the england team since the world cup yeah so i mean we had a f- five game uh run without a win um which i've always been a little bit lenient on because it has been um us not having a competitive game since then so there's i know he, Phil Neville talks a lot about having a World Cup hangover and uh, and the kind of the disappointment of the World Cup affecting the players and in a way you don't want to forgive that because every other team has managed to turn it around teams that have a lot more to mm. be upset about like Netherlands for example you know have, have switched straight on and have been playing really well so why has it affected England for longer but at the same time, when you don't have a competitive fixture that you need to switch on for, then you can sort of see why it would possibly drag out a bit longer. So I am sort of semi-sympathetic to that argument. And then um, there's been injuries, um, there's been rotations and bringing new people into the camp. Um, but yeah... It's what's been disappointing is that football hasn't been great. Um, mm. If they, if you, if we were seeing the performances, then you'd kind of be a little bit more sympathetic to going that many games without a win. But when you're watching really bad football, it does feel like we're going backwards a bit. That said, when uh, went to the Czech Republic, that was a, a terrible game of football. Um, England eventually won three two. It was like so bad it was freezing cold the <laughs> snow was really really heavy um i think in that game i th- i do think that his job was on the line a little bit hmm. and grinding out a win with a very very late goal was extremely lucky but now there's a little bit of breathing space hmm. contract central contracts are being renewed around now um which gives you a little bit of movement on kind of personnel shaking up a little bit mm. um she believes it's going to be a massive test the problem they've got is or that the FA have got is that getting rid of Phil after she believes is very very close to the olympics right. so if they were going to do it they would have had to do it kind of after the Czech Republic game before okay. christmas um because you need to have a decent amount of time for a coach to to get ready but then if you stick with Phil for this period then you're sort of committed to him till 2021 regardless and I think they are committed to him Um, you know the fact that they've 
kept him and not fired him after that Czech Republic game despite the poor performance um, that they've brought in Dawn Scott which I know he really really wanted to happen um, who'd had a shows- huge role with the US team over the last decade um, and you know, is a big loss for the US oh yeah I was chatting to uh, Rapino about um, about the influence of Dawn mm-hmm. yesterday and uh, I mean she was pretty devastated to be honest mm-hmm. at, at, at Dawn going and um, and very uh, very emotional about just mm-hmm. how important she had been to the US Women's National Team over the past 10 years she didn't speak quite so glowingly of Jill Ellis when she left <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it's. I think that's uh, reflected of the response generally, hasn't it been to the two departures? Is uh, one has been a lot more heartfelt than the other generally. Um, but uh, yeah, so it, it's that's a massive coup for England. Um, there are certain partnerships that are starting to look decent, like uh, Leah Williamson being given time in uh, at the back alongside Steph Horton and stuff. Uh, so. Th- it's got potential um they really really need good she beliefs um because i think the goodwill is there to sort of forget the past few months and just look forward but there's only so long that's going to last if we're not seeing like some actual decent football which is has been the biggest problem is that the football has been bad and the Wembley game uh, you know a 2-1 loss to germany in front of or was it 3-1 in the end i can't remember uh, in front of 70 thousand people um was very very difficult because there were patches of that where the play was really really poor Mm. um and if they put on a show then i don't think people would have cared about the result Mm. so yeah that's the biggest thing at the moment is they really really need just some good performances in terms of the Olympics, it's obviously a Great Britain team, not just an England team. If you're looking at the likely starting 11 for Team GB, how many of them are not England players? It's really hard because I know that a few people um, have the position like that it's, well, it's England that qualified for the Olympics. So it should be an England team. that They're the mm. one, they they won qualification so they should be the ones to fill out the bulk of that team especially when it's a reduced squad you know you're going down from 23 players at the World Cup to 18 uh, member squad for the Olympics Um, I don't think that because I really want to see the likes of Kim Little um, as part of uh, part of a Team GB Mm. team Um, the thing is it's a really tough call because there's so many decent particularly Scottish players at the minute Um, Obviously, uh, just mentioned Kim Little, but you've got, you know, um, Caroline Weir, who's been doing fantastically for Man City lately. Um, Lisa Evans, who for me is a bit of an unsung hero of um, Arsenal's team at the moment. Uh, In the game where Vivian Midma scored or assisted in 10 of the goals, Lisa Evans scored or assisted in five of those. So, like, it's sort of, you know, she's kind of gets hidden under the radar a little yeah. bit by the, the glory going on elsewhere. Jen Beatty at the back, um Erin Cuthbert, um uh, Sophie Ingle, uh great defensive midfielder. Um so that there's a lot of really good Scots that could potentially slot into that team. For me, the big one is Kim Little because mm. partly because uh, the midfield during the World Cup was where England was so light, uh partly for injury, but also because she'd be playing alongside 
um likely jordan nobs and mm. they do it so well at club level that why wouldn't you just translate that into the national right. team um so yeah for me that she would have to be in there um and then i, th- I it's hard to look past bringing in Erin Cuthbert or right. Caroline Weir, but again, it's a small squad, so you could see why he may have a kind of inclination towards rewarding some of the players that he's worked with um, over over this summer and kind of bringing new players in mm-hmm. since then as well. Because the other thing is, you don't want to annoy players too much going into a home Euros um, right. and having them frustrated that they weren't picked so okay. yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a difficult one I also wanted to ask you about the growth of journalism and coverage of women's soccer hmm. um, in Europe especially in the UK um, because we don't have many full we don't have many full-time soccer journalists of any type in the US there aren't that many of us but there's especially not too many uh, full-time journalists who cover women's soccer full-time. Uh, Meg Lenahan at The Athletic really stands out. Uh, Steph Young, uh, Caitlin Murray, who does cover a little bit of the men's game. Um, you know, I cover women's soccer a fair amount. Um, obviously, our U.S. men's team is pretty bad right now, and, and the women's team is clearly the shining star of American soccer. Uh, but I still don't do full-time women's soccer. And yet we've seen you and, and how many other like full-time women's soccer reporters now over there? Yeah, so there's, there's a lot. So there's myself, Katie White at The Telegraph. Um, you've got, uh, there's quite a few who are, who kind of dip in and out of both men's and women's football. So Molly Hudson at The Times, um, Amy at Goal.com, Kieran Tavam at The Athletic. Um Joe Curry at the BBC. Mm. Um, yeah, that, so there's a, um, Isabel Barker at The Sun, hmm. uh, Claire Bloomfield at the Daily Mail. You so know, many, not, I like yeah, it. Yeah, um, it's, it's really great. And that, if we were talking a year ago, it would have been one, huh. um, which was Katie Wyatt was taken on full time in about October last year. So I, I was the first sort of... Um, I was the first to write regularly on women's football for a national newspaper, um, which started just before the 2017 Euros with a weekly column, um, which I always kind of describe it as the first time that a newspaper switched from responsive coverage to just general coverage because it it was very much like you're covering it every week regardless Mm -hmm. with a column uh, rather than oh crap there's a FA Cup final quick we better send someone to that you know like it was uh, so that was like the first little change and then from that everyone kind of up their game and started after about a year of me doing that started to see something in it um, and then Katie was the first full time mm-hmm. uh, reporter the Telegraph um, and then I was taken on a few months after that and then these other jobs have all sprung up since then partly out of the world cup build up most Hmm. of them um but yeah so it's it's been a massive shift and it's become a little bit of an arms race um because well i mean when i when i first started my column one of the things they said to me was it was like i say it's just before the the 2017 euros in the netherlands Mm -hmm. and uh so they said we're, we're started then 
and then we'll sit down and have a chat and assess it in September and they said we're not expecting the figures to the hits online to be massive mm-hmm. you know we're expecting to be a slow burner but we've got to ha- ha- see some kind of positive signs and we'll have to sit down and have a look at it and we never had that conversation because straight off the bat um it was getting figures that far exceeded what they were what hmm. they were hoping for wow. um because there was an audience there that wanted it and just weren't being like given any kind of coverage at all huh. so there was uh, yeah this waiting and ready audience um and i think you know some of the viewing figures and reship figures from um from the uh world cup mm-hmm. in particular uh really kind of boosted uh like the um boosted editors into thinking that this is something that we can monetize as well you know um lots of papers have sponsorship deals through you know the likes of barclays and visa and stuff for coverage we got sponsorship from visa for our world cup coverage Mm. um i know the sun's wsl coverage is sponsored Mm. um and yeah, there, I think there's a, a bit of a a change in ideology around it that there's a kind of, we have a responsibility to be covering a sport that represents half of the population of the country, uh, particularly a sport that was banned for 50 years by the FA and that the media probably played a bit of a part in uh, not being critical of that and actually sure. parroting the FA lines of uh, unsuitability and things like that uh, in the 1920s. Um, and a general recognition that men's football was very much uh, like, it's a reciprocal relationship, isn't it? You know, men's football grew with uh, the growth of uh, football journalism. Mm-hmm. Football journalism grew with the growth of men's football. So why can't there be that kind of same relationship with the women's game? You know, we have responsibility to go grow the game. Um, but at the same time, it, it helps us because if we're boosting, uh, if if the crowds are growing, if people are watching women's football and wanting to read about it, our sales go up and our hits go up. So like it's, uh, yeah, I think there's a much better recognition that there's no reason why that relationship can't exist right. within women's football and the media as, as well. So yes, probably one of the very very few growth areas of journalism <laughs> in the uk at the minute but yeah it's wow. a good place to be very cool um what, what's your story with how you got into doing what you do ah, so this is a, a weird one because um, i so i watched football from when i was a kid i was i always have um watched it uh what a big Arsenal fan, um, followed it from when I was quite small. Uh, the men's and the women's team. The women's team played in uh, Shoreditch Park opposite my council estate. Um, when they first started, obviously Arsenal, the, probably the most well-known football team um, in the country, at least, if not the world, at that stage in kind of like the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, they leafleted my council estate saying that they were training across the road so we used to go across me and my dad every weekend and watch them train I was like four or five um so they were always there then when I was on um uh like the 98 
double winning season and then the two th- uh, the 2013 uh, invincible season for the men's teams mm-hmm. um at the parades of those the women's team were on the bus behind mm. uh, with their trophies and so they were always there so we, i was always i was lucky because i was always around women's football so i was always a fan of it uh following the likes of kelly smith and rachel yankee and yeah. faye white and stuff um but weirdly i never ever saw it as a career option really? um yeah so I just didn't even really think that sports journal. I, d- I don't know why. I just didn't even. It didn't even compute as a thing that people did. Um, I don't know who I thought did it because I read <laughs> the papers. I read yeah. the Guardian. I read the Mirror, um, and ma- you know, I'd start with the sports pages. But I never ever thought of that as like something I could do. I actually wanted to be an architect, so I did huh. uh, architecture at university. Oh wow! Yeah. So and then from there, um, because I had a sort of design background through architecture. Um, started working in a bit of comms for like some small charities and then got into newspaper design and sort of during that time I was doing little bits of football writing here and there for like fanzines and things Mm -hmm. so when I started working on uh quite a small newspaper um they noticed I was into sport that I'd been writing for a few fanzines and like do you want to go to a couple of games do a bit of sport you know train you up a little bit um and it sort of grew from there and i fell Hmm. in love with it straight away so yeah it's a sort of very very strange route (laughs) um but yeah architecture to sports journalism and where can we find you on twitter Uh, at suzy rack w-r-a-c-k awesome suzy rack thank you so much for coming in congratulations on your award nominations and your terrific work i love reading your stuff thanks back at you Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Susie Rack, as well as producer Harry Swartout, and everyone at Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Remember, if you like the podcast, it would really help us if you go to Apple Podcasts and provide a rating and a review, and we'd appreciate you recommending the podcast to someone you know. See you next time.